Hello and welcome to episode 80 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi. And I'm Peter Lim. This is the second episode in a two-part series on biographies and databases of Atlantic slaves recorded at the Atlantic Slave Biographies Database Conference at Michigan State University in November of 2013. Our guest today is David Eltis, Robert W. Woodruff Professor of History at Emory University. Professor Eltis's research interests are the early modern Atlantic world, slavery, and migration. He's the author of Economic Growth and the Ending of the Transatlantic Slave Trade, published by Oxford University Press in 1987, which won the British Trevor Rees Memorial Prize, and The Rise of African Slavery in the Americas, published by Cambridge University Press in 2000, and awarded the Frederick Douglass Prize, the John Ben Snow Prize, and the Wesley Logan Prize. He's the co-editor of the path-breaking transatlantic slave trade database at www.slavevoyages.org. And he's also the PI on an NEH-funded collaborative project on the origins of Africans pulled into the transatlantic slave trade. We're continuing our discussion uh, here at the uh, Slave Trade Databases Conference. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome uh, Professor David Eltis from Emory University, very distinguished historian of the slave trade. And perhaps, um, David, you could just, uh, for the listeners' sake, uh, tell them how you came to, to study African history, and particularly the slave trade and its numbers. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I think it goes back to the 1960s in the sense that uh, civil rights activities underlined the big tension between what existed, um, well, basically the tension between slavery and freedom. Uh, slavery had always been a fringe subject, and I think the civil rights movement began the process by which it moved to the center of historical studies, historical interest. Uh, the period took maybe 10 or 15 years, and there it was um, in the center of things. Now, I began the, my interest in the subject by looking at abolition, and uh, that, it's, it was right there where the tension was strongest, because at that point, slavery had actually disappeared from the Americas a bare what, 80 years previously. Um, and I was really trying to reconcile that. How is it possible to live on a continent, particularly a country which put such a stress on freedom and yet um, had suppressed both slave trade and slavery relatively recently in its past? That's where the interest came. Plus, at the same time, there was um, a computer revolution going on as well as a civil rights movement uh, and Curtin's book on the Atlantic slave trade, uh, a census came out in 1969 mm. and offered a severe revision of what had previously been understood as the numbers of people forced into the traffic and carried across the Atlantic. Uh, Curtin actually, together with Herb Klein at the time, had made separate databases uh, using punch cards and running them through an IBM mainframe machine. Um, and I remember clearly the day the box of punch cards came from Phil Curtin. He was obviously well established. I was absolutely nobody at that time. But I expressed an interest and he sent me his complete database. 
This was not an attachment to email. It was, um, it was two boxes, <laughs> 2,000 cards. <laughs> uh, and, of course, I had nowhere at home to do anything with them. Uh, so I, I started work on them when I actually uh, got into a university. Um, that was the starting point. And I was able to add to Curtin's data. Um, and at the same time, other people were taking advantage of the computer revolution. They were setting up their own databases on different national slave trades, uh, sometimes focusing on Africa, sometimes on the Americas. Um, and they were working from documents that were obviously in different languages and different time periods. And it was clear that the basic item, the basic unit of data, was very similar in all these different databases, and it made an awful lot of sense at some point to attempt a consolidation. And I remember uh, talking to Steve Berendt. Uh, we were both waiting for documents in the British um, archives, then called uh, the Public Record Office, and we asked each other what we were working on, and it turned out we were working on the slave trade. He was doing the late 18th century. I was doing the earlier period at that point. And in the course of the conversation, we said it makes sense to put all of the data that people have collected together in one place. And that's where the process began. It was 1988, I think. And I, I believe the project to bring them all together uh, began at Harvard in 19... Well, the application went in in 92. We got the grant in 93 at the Du Bois Institute. And that was the beginning of the process which ended with the publication of the CD-ROM in 1999. And at that point, we had something like 27,000 voyages. Yeah, 27,000 voyages documented in that first uh, transatlantic slave right. database CD-ROM, yeah. which I used in a class on comparative slavery oh, about yes. a, a decade ago, along with Paul Lovejoy's uh, biography and Robin Law's biography right. of Bakwakwa, sort of to, to try and give students a flavor of cutting-edge scholarship, both both in the digital uh, domain and the quantitative right. methods behind that, as well as the, the biographical oh. qualitative uh, approach. Um, but uh, what's also interesting is that you've continued to develop, improve, enhance, expand the transatlantic slave trade uh, database. And now there's a um, second version of it that is on the web at uh, slavevoyages.org. And um, can you tell us a little bit about the enhancements, both in terms of the empirical finds, but also perhaps in how uh, the user interface has expanded its uh, its use uh, internationally? Yes. Um, uh, the, um, the, the original database had 27,000 voyages, but in fact uh, there were many gaps, empty cells in the 27,000, uh, and it quickly became apparent that other sources were available. Uh, the biggest uh, lacuna or gap in the CD-ROM was actually for Portuguese voyages, and uh, we managed to get major funding in the United Kingdom, actually, to both add to the existing British staff, but also to 
really pull in the South Atlantic, which I have to say was seriously missing from the original um, uh, CD-ROM. Uh, of course, web technology had changed in the meantime, and it became possible to think of putting the thing on the web. But the first thing was to pull the data together, and we spent about five, um, six years, actually from 2001 to 2006, collecting the new data from Lisbon, from Rio de Janeiro, various places in Brazil. Uh, and the next step was to actually move it to the web, and that was quite a separate grand application, and that went through the National Endowment for the Humanities. And from 2006 to 2008, we worked on creating slavevoyages.org. And at the same time, uh, greatly adding to what was available, not just in terms of the data, but also in terms of the missing data. We developed a set of estimates, which you won't find on the CD-ROM. Um, in other words, we made allowance for voyages that we thought were missing. Uh, and what's represented now on Slave Voyages is both the hard data and a completely separate page with different colored background uh, called Estimates. Uh, so you can compare the two effectively. The, there's also a lot of other additions such as mapping which didn't exist on the CD-ROM. I mean, when we started out in 92, a CD was $2,000. It's hard to believe today. Mm. Um, by the time we issued the CD-ROM, it was you could do it for $200. That was the price of the CD-ROM. By the time we got to the web, it was free. <laughs> uh, but the major feature of, this, of the new site, to my mind, is the fact that it's organic. It's got a contribute page, which encourages people to add data which they believe is missing, to merge data which they think overlaps, and to delete data which they think um, shouldn't be there because the voyage we've tracked to Africa was actually going to get not slaves but ivory or something else, and it was coming right back to Europe instead of going to the Americas with people on board. So the database is basically constantly renewed. We get, um, I'd say we are making three or four changes a month sometimes. There's a batch of 100 and 200 changes at a time. And we're committed, in effect, to publishing a new version um, every couple of years. So we launched in December 2008. Um, the current version up there is 2010. Uh, and I have a, a third and up-to-date version, which hasn't been put up yet, so we're a year behind schedule, uh, but it's it's sitting there. And I hope that this actually continues into the future. It, it, it's important to uh, make the thing it, uh, malleable and responsive to scholarship. And that's the great and beautiful difference between a CD-ROM and a book on the one hand and a living site on the web on the other. And in your very interesting um, presentation this morning, you uh, mentioned new directions such as uh, data on liberated slaves and the African origin site, and you also mentioned the large number of hits that you get. 
uh, each semester, I think it was one to two thousand hits a day, which is really fantastic. Um, and really interesting, I thought, was the response from the audience, uh, the discussion about uh, determining names, uh, uh, interpreting African uh, uh, languages from data, and how complex that might be. Uh, but uh, also equally interesting to me was the, uh, the maps you showed with branches going off to places like St. Helena, uh, but also uh, Cuba, and uh, a lot of your presentation was uh, focused on data from Cuba. So could you just... Uh, uh, elaborate a little bit more on these new directions. It's almost like the, the project is multiplying um, so that now we have uh, taking on board liberated slaves uh, and also this, this uh, I think it's a separate site, African Origins. Uh. Yes, yes, well, uh, the, the thing to keep in mind is that the transatlantic slave trade is represented in slave voyages. It's just a fragment of the total voyage of an individual from origins in Africa to plantation or its counterpart in the Americas. Uh, what's missing from voyages is much information on what happens before the individual gets to the coast in Africa and what happens to the individual after he or she gets off the vessel in the Americas. Um, so the, moving into methods which would fill in either side uh, either one of those blanks, it seemed fairly logical. So we, we began on the African side, and the reason we did that was because in the 19th century, the British uh, began naval patrols. This was after they'd been the largest slave traders in the world in the 17, late 18th century. Uh, they switched to becoming the largest abolitionists in the world, and part of that um, switch involved patrolling the, the Atlantic Ocean, and they captured uh, something like uh, 15, 1,600 slave ships, about half of which actually had slaves on board. And when they captured a slave ship, they took the details down of the individuals on board, including the name, the African name, which is so valuable, in some cases the origin, but always age, sex, height, um, and, and bodily, body markings, scarifications. This information can be used to make ethno-linguistic associations. And it's these which allow us to construct a kind of geographic profile of where the enslaved people originated behind the actual coastline. Now, I would say we're not even halfway through the, the um, trajectory of collecting all the information we need, but we've made a good start. And eventually it'll be possible to take an ethno-linguistic group or even a religion like Islam and combine this with the estimates that we have for the slave trade and project how many people traveled uh, across the Atlantic um, that were already Islam or Yoruba or Igbo uh, and then see where they uh, land up in the Americas. Um, that's really the, the goal. Um, supposing I live long enough to actually uh, bring into reality. On the other side of the Atlantic, we've got the question, well, what happens when they get off the vessel? Well, it turns out that a large number of them, probably as many as uh, nearly half, are actually transshipped to somewhere else. And that is actually a separate slave trade. It's conducted with different vessels, smaller, 
and uh, it turns out that there's an, a, a database that's already in existence which tracks that traffic. We call it the intra-American slave trade. And Greg O'Malley um, at uh, UC Davis um, is bringing out a book uh, which is based on his database. And it's very interesting in the sense that it changes our assessment of the slave trade because, in fact, the British were selling huge numbers of slaves to other parts of the Americas, in particular, in particular the Spanish Americas. And we now think, we've got an article just being uh, reviewed right now, um, we now think that the, the, the Spanish took in more slaves than the British did in terms of their regional control of the Americas. And very few people taken that on board. Very few people realize that. So uh, the Brazilians were always, it's always the destination of the largest number of slaves. But uh, it seems that the Spanish-speaking Americas um, was in the second, second ranking. And the British were probably third, even though they, they carried most of those slaves across the Atlantic in the first place. Can you speak to the collaborative efforts that were necessary to bring the transatlantic uh, slave trade uh, database together? Because we have an image often of historians, as was mentioned by Walter Hawthorne earlier this morning, as very lonely individuals working in dusty archives uh, or reading books in their offices, uh, not wanting to be disturbed by phone calls and students, and, and yet n very little of, of what you just described, this extraordinary uh, digital resource could have seen the, the light of day without the participation of so many people. Um, and so collaboration, very important if you could speak to that, and also the, the uh, value of sharing this knowledge rather than, than guarding it. Yes, well, I didn't mention our wives. Uh, you, you're probably best to talk about this element with, with them rather than us, <laughs> or spouses, I should say. Um, <laughs> although there's a definite gender bias in, in these um, transatlantic studies, I think, uh, so far anyway. Uh, it, yes, but to be serious, it's, a, it's vitally important to share and collaborate. No one can possibly know the languages, all the languages that are necessary, especially on the African side of things. It's not possible for a single person to do any of this. Uh, and we were very fortunate to have uh, large numbers of people who were prepared to work with us. Uh, I've actually, in the end, not had anyone that's refused data. Um, uh, possibly one individual that I won't mention it, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, the, the big difficulty, the big challenge always, which I think emerged from today's conference, was standardizing the variables, standardizing the fields, because everyone created their own database. Um, and they did, what did they mean when they listed this variable by this name? Uh, there was... I think that took probably more time than anything else. The, the second thing that took time was the double counting issue, because what you get in voyages, and the research you do is fragments of a voyage, 
and you're never quite sure whether it belongs to a completely different voyage or whether it's just a different stage of an existing voyage. Uh, and eliminating, dealing with those two problems took more time than all the technical stuff and all the grant writing. Um, and it was by far the most tedious, but it had to be done. And it's not perfect even now. We still are editing constantly. I think that points to the uh, in significance of the historian in this in this role, right? That that technology can tell us really very little about uh, the meaning and value of what we see, um, and you know that's something to keep in mind. There are a lot too many scholars still very very shy and and uh, skeptical about digital tools and the whole field of digital history, but they sometimes forget that the historian plays a huge role yeah. in this burgeoning field. Well, perhaps to, to, to bring the discussion to a close, because we're due back at the conference in just a few minutes, uh, it was quite intriguing, I think, this morning where uh, different people, including yourself, um, spoke to what we might uh, uh, term um, future models, where are we going, can we uh, better preserve all this huge uh, amount of data by concentrating it in one institution or should it be dispersed, um, where, will, where are we going in other words in terms of the presentation, the preservation of this material, I, w I wonder if you could just speak briefly uh, on your thoughts on this. Yes, uh, first of all I think um, I think that the security of the data themselves is taken care of. Um, there are copies, uh, organizations like Meta Archive, which essentially store the contents. Uh, so loss of data in itself is not really an, an issue. The real problem is um, the maintenance of the websites that allow people to interact with the data. and. I'm, I've been doing this now for 20 years, starting collaboratively at Harvard in 92, and it's now 21 years later. And I know that, uh, I've been one of four institutions in that time, I know that, that you're very dependent on the institution. You are dependent not just the institution, but you have particular contact in the institution. You get on well with the dean. Um, someone thinks your work is important and will make sure you get funds to cover it and two years later or less that person is no longer in the same position and the person that's occupying the position has different priorities. Also there are things called budget crises. Um, so my, uh, my conclusion from my experience in the last 20 years is that we have to move to some model which operates independently of any single institution. And my, my preferred model would be a virtual platform, uh, which is maintained in the cloud, um, and it would have a rotating uh, temporary member, institutional membership. So that uh, in order to pay for a programmer, you probably need 70, 80, $100,000 a year. Uh, this could be covered, in effect, by contributions from eight, nine institutions who would sign up maybe for a three-year term. 
um, and at the end of that term they would have the option of stepping down or renewing. And the tangle side would, would be located at one place, uh, but even that could be moved from time to time. But the important thing is to have the interface, which is the expensive part of the operation, uh, operating independently of a, any single institution. Well, these are extremely important issues, and thank you so much for your insights and for speaking with Africa past and present. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.